Hello, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Network to Code on Network Collective. Network to Code and Network Collective are teaming up to bring our listeners a regular series of podcasts that focus on the art of network automation and programmability. In this first episode, we're going to be taking a look at the fundamental need for a source of truth, uh, what the source of truth may look like, how having a source of truth can enable network automation, and we'll take a look at the predominant tool for source of truth, NetBox. So settle in, and we'll be right back with all of that and more. So joining us for today's episode is Rick Sherman, John Anderson, and Jeremy Stretch, all from Network to Code. So hey guys, I'm excited to have you uh, and welcome to the show. So Rick, I understand that you kind of had a, I guess a sideways approach <laughs> in the sources of truth, like you kind of just stumbled on it or something like that. What's your story? Um, and, and I guess kind of leading into like, what is it and why is it important? Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to me because uh, network automation has been uh, kind of my bread and butter for a long time. But then just kind of one day I heard Source of Truth and it, it was already seemed like this this well-known entity. And I was honestly taken kind of by surprise. And so, you know, I felt a little bit uh, behind the curve. And once I kind of dug in and understood what it was, I was like, oh, my God, you know, how did I miss this? And so you know, when we thought about this episode, you know, I, I suspect other people might be coming from the same background. We have, you know, they may be kind of hearing glimpses of what a source of truth is and have a lot of questions. And I think we've got the right two people here to answer that definitively. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can say that was my experience as well. Uh, so I don't do nearly as much network automation as you all do as part of your gig, considering the, the focus on what you do. But I felt like, hey, like we're talking about Python, we're talking about coding, we're talking about Ansible, we're talking about all these tools. And all of a sudden, Source of Truth kind of came out of, out of nowhere for me as well. Um, that was my experience. It's like, well, wait a minute. And then, of course, like you said, the light bulb goes on. Uh, so, so what is it? So what is a source of truth and, and why does it matter? Yeah, so I can I can take that one. So it, it is interesting that you guys uh, share your perspectives uh, from that standpoint, because I think network engineers have always been asked to be multidisciplinary. Um, and I, I found over the years that um, the the new domains that we're asked to you know come into uh, come in waves. Uh, so like we're big on cloud right now and edge computing is coming and data analytics and stuff like that. Uh, I think the concept of source of truth, which is really just one term in a, in a broader sense uh, from another domain, uh, came about, you know, as a part of our automation efforts. Um, and, you know, like I said, source of truth, uh, terms like source of record and stuff like that really come from a domain uh, centered around data engineering and even data warehousing within the enterprise space. And so what these concepts deal with is, you know, obviously enterprises have a lot of data uh, and how we manage that data. So particular data points, how do we trust between systems that the data we have is uh, correct, that it's the data that we're supposed to be dealing with? Um, because what we find a lot with data engineering is uh, multiple systems need to use the same data points, the same data sets to do the work that they do. Um, but it obviously doesn't make sense that we duplicate all of that data in the different systems that, that need access to it. So, And if we take a step back from source of truth for a moment and we talk about source of record, uh, this is a, a little bit more fine-grained concept. Uh, source of record deals with individual data points. Uh, and we'll talk about source of truth in a moment, but source of truth takes an aggregation of these sources of records and creates kind of a, a single pane of glass view into an entire data set. So a source of record um, can be any system, 
So we have multiple systems that's dealing that are dealing with the same types of data. Uh, we pick one as the authoritative source for uh, a piece of data that becomes our system of record. So in the networking space, you know, often you know enterprises are entrenched in some sort of IPAM system that they're dealing with, um, Infoblox, uh, Blue Cat, what have you, um, and. There might be other sources of data that deal with IPAM information, namely Excel seems to be one that comes up a lot, uh, especially in, in, our, in our automation efforts to try and get people away from Excel. But, you know, by and large, a lot of people still manage their IPAM data with something uh, like Excel. But uh, if you look, uh, if you take a step back and look at that situation, you've got duplicated data there. So the data you've got in Excel and the data that you've got in your actual IPAM system, it's the same data records. Um, but which of those data sources is actually correct? Is it Excel or is it the running state in your IPAM system? Um, so we, we have to use these concepts of source of record to basically pick one of those and say, for any given data point, what is the authoritative source? What is What system is supposed to be um, the correct source for that data? Uh, it doesn't matter you know, where it is, what system it is, but we have to pick one. Uh, and the reason we have to pick one is because humans are very good at identifying patterns. And so we, we as humans can take a step back and say, oh, that data is correct, that data is not correct, just by looking at it. Um, but when we start getting into uh, automation and programmability, and where we have systems that are making decisions on behalf of humans, uh, that's a much harder problem to tackle because a system isn't uh, it, it isn't so good at pattern matching like we as humans are. We, we, it doesn't have the full context of the of being able to take a step back and look at the system as a whole. So we have to help our automation efforts along by picking individual systems to be our our our, our uh, source of record for individual data points. So that's great. That's a source of record. I'm talking about individual fine grained data points. Let's take it up a, a level and talk about a source of truth. So a source of truth is going to take these uh, individual data points and kind of aggregate them into a, a single pane of glass, if you will. So the source of truth uh, may pull information from an IPAM, it may pull information from a DCIM place and aggregate that, that viewpoint. So the idea is we're using all of this data to create uh, data sets that we can then say individual systems have an authoritative view of. Uh, so, John, I, I guess I'm, I just want to make sure I understand this correctly. Is it basically that you can have multiple, you know, uh, sources of records? And I'm seeing this as, you know, you might have like your IP address information in your IPAM, but you might have a list of devices or some other piece of information that sits in some other system. You can declare like multiple authoritative sources of data. But the whole idea of the source of truth is to try to like bring that all together to amalgamate it and bring all that data in kind of into one place that you can use for your automation efforts. Is that the idea? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So source of record, again, is, is a more fine grain level, uh, perhaps even, you know, at individual records and, and things like that in individual data points. Source of truth kind of brings that up uh, a little bit higher in the stack. So if we look at IPAM data, you know, you've got IP addresses uh, that, you know, link within prefixes. Uh, but then you could, you've also got relationships between IP address assignments and maybe layer three interfaces on your device configuration. Um, those are two really different data points, to, to be honest. And so a source of truth can deal with those individual data points in the context of IPAM. Uh, but you might have two different sources of record for those data sets being, you know, prefix lists or what, sorry, not prefix lists, but, you know, 
IP prefixes, and then uh, assignments of IP addresses to layer three interfaces. Those might be two different sources of record, but you can aggregate those together into a source of truth. Uh, so really, there's this concept of data domains that we talk about in the automation space. And really, you want to have a source of truth per data domain. Now, an individual system might be a source of truth for multiple data domains. But the important part is that you're picking a system to be the source of truth for a data domain that can do a good job at being the source of truth for that data domain. So. If your IPAM that you're using today in your enterprise does a good job of managing your IPAM data, then maybe it's a good idea to keep that data there and make that your source of truth. Um, and you know that's a concept that extends beyond uh, you know just what we're talking about today because uh, a lot of people use the term single source of truth. And there's some misconceptions about what that actually means. Some people hear the word single and think that you need a single system to hold all of your network automation data in to be your source of truth. And in fact, that's actually not what that means. Uh, what it means is that you need a single system that you can trust per data domain. Uh, so if your IPAM, again, is the thing that you trust that data, that's fine. That's your source of truth for a single data domain being your IPAM data. You can have another system. Uh, totally separate from your IPAM that manages your DCIM infrastructure and so forth. Um, but the idea is that that data isn't duplicated in those data domains between different systems. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense as as I'm thinking about it. Um, because I, I see the, you know, the, you're going to have specialized systems in each of these different do data domains that, that you know, are going to be able to store and, and use that data better. What you really don't want is overlap between same pieces of information. You know, I don't want some IP address source information to be in one you know, <laughs> one source of truth over here and another to be over here because that's when it starts getting confusing. You don't have a picture then. The single source of truth is that for this particular piece of information, I have a single source I go to get that thing, but I could be pulling 10 different pieces of information that might be from 10 different systems depending on what those domains look like. Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. So is there anything here? I mean, so we've, we've talked about kind of, you know, like what it is. I'd, I'd like to try to bring it back, you know, more specifically to, to networking and network automation. So like we have... IPAM. I mean, what other pieces of information are we collecting here? Because I mean, I think there's a lot um, that I don't necessarily know that networkers think a ton about, <laughs> right? If you're doing things manually, these are things that it just come natively. You learn how to do them over time just by doing your job. But the pieces of information I think that we have to collate are quite a bit. You mentioned some of them. So IP, uh, you said prefix list, and I understand why you backed off of that, but lists of prefixes <laughs> that exist on the network, um, you know, VLANs and VLAN allocations. I mean, like, what are the things you're seeing that people are collecting in these systems that are all these little like, tokens and pieces of information that are required? Yeah, so I think... Um at the core of a lot of uh, network automation is an inventory of devices, because uh, because ultimately the the a first step in building a lot of network automation platforms that we've seen out there is um, device configuration automation. So you know generation of configuration and deployment of that configuration, uh, which means you need to have a system that's centered around the devices in your network that you want to automate. Um, so that's where a DCIM or data center infrastructure management platform comes into play. Uh, that first and foremost, you can have an inventory of the devices that you want to automate. Uh, but there's a lot of other metadata that people don't realize that goes into device configurations. Uh, metadata for like physical location. You know, where is a device deployed? So that means you need a site list. Uh, so all the metadata that goes into the physical sites in your enterprise, um, 
you know, site contacts for uh, metadata that would go into the configuration for who do you call if the device goes down and you need to physically power cycle it, you know, stuff like that. Um, you can get into hierarchical regions and, and things like that. So if you're a global enterprise, you want to track devices, maybe you want to deploy configurations to all of your America's devices or all of your European devices. Um, that's all metadata that's very important to network automation. So it's more than just some Excel spreadsheet with host name and management IP uh, for your device inventory. There's lots of other data that goes into it too. Um, you know, IPAM obviously, you know, um, your prefix allocations um, could be uh, address space that you're uh, getting from your um, uh, rear. Uh, could also be VLAN information, obviously. Uh, there's also services information. So maybe um, you want to, because often we see that network automation bleeds over into the services space too. So it's not just, uh, you know, packets flying across the wire that we deal with as network engineers. You know, the comment I made at the opening of the of the talk here was that network engineers are continuing to be asked to be multidisciplinary. So, you know, maybe our DCIM infrastructure system uh, is also tracking server information and virtual machine information now, because these are very closely related services to what we offer in the core networking space. So lots of data around that as well. Well, we talked about, uh, I guess, some of the, you know, some of the pros and some of the, the mechanics uh, of the social truth. Do you think there's any misconceptions about what it does? Uh, yeah. Any thoughts about like, you know, like <laughs> people think it should do this, but it really doesn't do that. Right. So I think one of the, the, Biggest misconceptions uh, in the when we talk about sources of truth um, out in the industry and with our clients and so forth is they think it's going to solve their um, data consistency problems. And, and when I when I say that, I mean data correctness. So because just because we trust a system from a programmatic standpoint to have the data that we care about, that does not at all mean that the data that's actually in that system is correct. Um, that's a totally different problem to solve. And it's often a problem that has to be tackled not only from a technical level, but also from a business process standpoint. You have, a, you have to have a lot of buy-in in your organization when you're choosing your systems uh, to be your sources of truth to say from a business process standpoint, okay, we're no longer going to enter data in three different systems when we go to deploy a device. We're only going to enter it in one system. And backed, you know, behind the scenes, we're going to have automation in place that will sync data from that source of truth to those other systems, like your ticketing system, um, maybe your your monitoring platforms, and so forth. Uh, so, uh, data correctness, data consistency, is not a problem that a that a source of truth uh, within the context of just that problem space is going to solve for you. Yeah, I don't think you can have any conversation about. <laughs> automation without getting into the organizational aspects as well. Some of it's just about culture and approach, right? Like, and then data is data. It's true for anything we've ever done, right? You get into data. Uh, data is fantastic to have it, but it's only as accurate as it is, you know, as the person who put it in and to put it in the right place. But it is interesting that you mentioned the, you know, putting it in multiple places because I feel like culturally I've seen that a lot where, you know, one team or multiple teams are managing the same list of information and, and it's all getting propagated through different means and it's never, never consistent. Uh, I think that, I think there should be a lot of people who, re uh, who resonate with that. Like just say, like, oh, yeah, our server team keeps a, a list of this and our network team keeps a list of this. And our executives also have a list somewhere <laughs> of, the, of the same thing, but God only knows how they actually came to that information because it certainly wasn't from one, from one, you know, one piece or one place. 
Now, um, I do. I mean, we've got uh, Jeremy on here, and I, I want to. I want to talk a bit about Netbox because I know that that Netbox has been a. Uh, it's well, it's become very popular. <laughs> it's not that old, is it, Jeremy? It's only been out for a couple of years now. It was, yeah, I think uh, it was June 2016 was the initial open source. 2016 release, so. has it been that long? Wow. Time flies. It doesn't feel like it was that long ago. Um, but an open source project that uh, that you have, I guess, headed up. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. There, I'm, it was uh, it was work with a previous employer, and it has extended. It's obviously open source and independent of that. But I just I'd like to hear about it because I keep hearing about it as yeah you know, as a really common and really uh, popular source of truth, right? Or as one of these tools or systems that people are using for that. And I imagine that's why it was created to begin with. So I'd like to hear a bit about kind of like how that came to be and, and kind of where it's going. So maybe you can lead us there a bit. Sure, absolutely. Um, so when we – back when I was first, uh, you know, started to work on Netbox, it actually was born out of the, uh, frustration over not being able to, to source uh, an appropriate IPAM and DSIM application to meet to meet what our needs were at the time. Now, keep in mind as I say this, the, you know, the obvious caveat is that this was four or five years ago now that um, – when we were evaluating uh, alternatives and options at the time, we weren't able to find everything and basically checked every every box that we had. There were some promising applications out there, both open source and uh, and commercial, but none of them did everything that we were looking for. And especially on the commercial side, one of our big um, concerns was being able to find something that would that was economic for us at the scale that we were operating at as far as IP space is concerned. A lot of the commercial products are licensed based on volume. Right. So obviously when you're a cloud provider and you're issuing, you know, entire slash 18 slash 16s at a time, volume is a very, very big concern for you. Um, so, yeah, I, I basically set out to write something, um, just a quick little demo proof of concept in a couple of weeks on using the uh, the Django uh, Python web platform, which works very well. And that's, that's what Netbox runs on today and um, put that together and start using it internally. Um, worked out very well. I just I think we, we hit the critical momentum internally. Uh, pretty early on, which is really what led it to to succeed long term, uh, and then uh, we were able to open source that uh, less than a year after I started uh, started work on it. So this goes back to about June 2016, and it's been been growing uh, rapidly ever since. Uh, I keep waiting for the for the pace to level off a bit, and I'm I'm still waiting for that to happen. Well, it's interesting you say that because you know it it seems like it's it's really built a lot of momentum in the community. Um, you know, how do you think? the community has discovered it? How are they getting involved? You know, what what's building that momentum and keeping it at a fever pitch? I think one of the biggest, uh, the, one of the biggest features that attracts people to Netbox has been the REST API and the fact that everything is, is intentionally made to be programmatically accessible. Um, that was one of the, uh, you know, it was a big goal from the beginning. Um, and, uh, you know, we didn't have a, a very robust uh, API to begin with, but that's one of those things it was just owing to, you know, my learning and, and however much time could be spent developing the project and all that. But ever since Netbox 2.0, we've had a, a pretty powerful uh, REST API. And that was one of the, the, you know, the biggest draws to Netbox and, and people being able to say, oh, there's an API. So I can just, for any, any record that exists in the application, I can read to it, I can write to it, uh, and I can integrate that. It became this, this kind of central point of integration for other tools, right? So even if you're using something like, you know, say you have Infobox set up or some other commercial IPM provider or any, any IPM application, and but you want to deploy Netbox, you don't necessarily have to move everything to Netbox right away or, or ever if you don't want to, but you can use the API to either 
you know, copy data from your what you your actual system record for those uh, for IP records into NetBox, or you can inform uh, you know your other application uh, using data from NetBox. It works either way. And so, in terms of of, of leveraging NetBox, um, where do you see people deploying it in their stack? Like, where where does it fit in to their automation strategy? I mean, NetBox was intended to represent the um, the desired state of a network. So. Uh, as you know, as John talked about source of truth. Well, there's there's two truths, right? There's there's what we want our network to look like, what ideally it should look like, and then there's the reality, right? And the reality is what it actually does look like. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, obviously when we go to configure a BGP adjacency, the adjacency should be up, right? In most cases, and that would be the desired state. Now, obviously, a big enough network is always going to have links that are down, adjacencies that are down. That's the operational state. So NetBox is not intended to reflect the operational state, but rather to act as an authority that says, yes, this A should be connected to B. You know, yes, this IP should be connected to this or should be assigned to this interface. And then we leave it to the monitoring systems that are much, much better at anything that I could write to determine whether or not that's true. Right. So you take the desired state and compare it to the operational state and your delta is what you need to work on today. Right. Um, So that's really where NetBox primarily fits in, but it also, like, like I alluded to earlier, you know, it also works great as an integration point for other systems. So uh, maybe you need to inform you know, other systems with site data or rack information as far as like fit where addresses are physically located, uh, or maybe it's on the IPM side, or maybe you just need to store, um, you know, free radius keys and the secrets component of NetBox. So you can do all of that. Uh, it, it, it provides a, a very wide array of, of objects, uh, not everything by any means, but it does provide a lot of, of just data storage. And you can really kind of pick a la carte what you what aspects of, and features in that box that you want to use it for. Well, I think that's actually a really good segue into like, what are some of the features in that box itself? Like if we were to look at a, a feature list on the website, like what are the core tenants of NetBox? Right. So primarily it's an IPAM and DSIM application. So IPAM is IP address management. DSIM is uh, data center infrastructure management. For the purposes of this con- of this conversation, uh, since DSIM is a little bit of an overloaded term, uh, it doesn't deal with facilities management or anything like that, but it will look at, you know, uh, sites, racks, uh, physical devices mounted in the racks, cabling, uh, so console power, network connections, patch panels, stuff like that. That's what we mean when we talk about DSIM. So NetBox provides all of that. So you can physically model, or, or, or I'm sorry, entirely model a physical cable plant uh, for all your console network and power connections. You can model uh, racks and devices inside those. And then you have the logical component, which is more the, the IPAM side of it. Uh, so those are your, you know, allocating prefixes and IP addresses. IP addresses can be assigned to interfaces and so forth. You know, VLANs can be assigned. Interfaces can be assigned to 802.1Q trunk mode. You can have uh, VLAN or interfaces tagged with their individual VLANs. And I think that's one of the biggest strengths, honestly, in NetBox is that there's so much integration between them that you can navigate just clicking around the interface. You can go from a, a VLAN to an interface to an IP address and follow things around just like you would in, in, in your real network in the course of troubleshooting or, or, or um, design. Uh, there's other aspects or uh, components of NetBox as well. So uh, I mentioned briefly like the secret storage. So basically it's the very lightweight implementation of something like Vault where you can just uh, store encrypted copies of uh, sensitive strings. And that's primarily intended to serve things like uh, free radius keys, uh, BGP secrets, stuff like that. Things that you would need in the course of generating a, a network device configuration file. Uh, circuits is another one. So when we take when we talk about circuits, we're referring to communication circuits. So something you would order for connectivity to the internet or an MPLS network, things like that. 
uh, providers and circuits can be can be connected. And what's neat is that you can terminate a circuit to a site, and then you can actually run a cable from that circuit termination into a device and things like that. So it all it all is is uh, very well integrated. We also have support for uh, tenancy assignment. So if you're like a, um, a managed services provider, you have multiple tenants, or even if you just need to distinguish between internal departments or within your organization, uh, everything, just about everything in that box can be assigned to a tenant. Uh, tenants can be grouped. And uh, uh, we do power as well. I think I skipped that o skipped over that in, in the uh, DSIM component, but that's another big aspect of it. That's, that was a more recent addition, I think, in 2.6. Uh, now we have the ability to model power feeds, and uh, that's still somewhat nascent. It's getting more robust every day as, as people raise new use cases against things like that. But um, that's where the core of it is at today. Uh, obviously, we have a lot more planned, a lot more coming up. And we have a bunch of extra features that are scattered in there as well. Like there's, um, you know, full change logging within NetBox. So anytime someone adds changes or deletes an object, uh, that's fully accounted for, whether it's through the UI or the API. Um, and then we've got some more powerful tools that are really, really interesting. Um, I've been blown away, blown away by what some people have been doing with them, like uh, export templates. So basically, you select a, a list of objects, and you can just write a Jinja template to produce some output based on what you select. And that can be anything from a CSV format for export, or to uh, I've seen entire like free radius config files done uh, from a list of devices. You can actually generate a config directly from NetBox for stuff like that. And then uh, more recently, we've had things like custom scripts. So that's basically allowing you, as the user, to go into NetBox write a Python script and, you know, save that file locally in that box on the server and present to your other users a form to fill out that does some action. So you can be something like, you know, I'm standing up a new site. So fill out these three fields, like what kind of, how big is the site and how many, you know, routers does it have stuff like that. Click submit and it just populates everything in that box for you. So there's a lot of, a lot of really cool stuff that we can do these days. Um, and, and it's all fairly recent just in the last year, year and a half, maybe. Um, so I'm really excited to see where we go with it. Yes, I mean, it, it seems to me that you've effectively built enterprise-grade software in the open source. And so I, I kind of brings me to two questions, and, and we can ask them in, in two parts if we need to. But, you know, one is how are how are folks uh, getting buy-in to, to move to this model, right? Where we've talked about source of records, source of truth. There's a tool like NetBox. You know, I'm a network engineer. I've got this set of problems. I think NetBox will solve it. How am I going back to the organization and selling this? How am I, how am I doing proof of concepts? How am I uh, getting that buy-in from the other teams? And then additional question, my additional question would be, is then how do I contribute and get back into the NetBox community, right? I've evaluated it. Maybe there's a feature that doesn't quite meet my needs. It sounds like you guys are really responsive to at least uh, discussing and evaluating new features. Kind of what does that, that transition look like? Sure. So as far as the, uh, you know, the evaluation of the software goes, yeah, I mean, it's going to depend a lot on how your organization is, is structured. Obviously, some people are, or some organizations are a lot more receptive to the use of open source application uh, than others, obviously. Uh, I'd like to think that we have enough of a track record at this point to, it's easy enough to point to say, hey, look, this is legitimate software. There's lots of people using it. Um, you know, I'm aware of some big names that are that are using it. Uh, obviously, none of them disclose it publicly, um, or most of them don't disclose that publicly. As far as being able to vet the, uh, you know, the application itself, we've been working on publishing some, uh, some demo data that would help uh, help expedite the process of um, 
of actually evaluating the application itself. That's something where we're, we're probably not the best on right now as far as like, okay, if I download and install NetBox, like what do I do with it? Well, by default, you just get an empty installation. It's kind of hard to, to get the initial momentum from that and figure out, okay, well, you know, what is a prefix? And uh, like, you know, how do I, how do I go about like a, defining a circuit and things like that? Um, so that, that is one of our major initiatives right now is just finding some way to um, smooth out the installation process and, and, provide some demo data for people to play with. And I think we've got, uh, there's a semi-official de uh, demo instance of NetBox set up right now, and we're just in the process of trying to get more more data around that. Um, but as far as the process, you know, the, the application itself, it's pretty easy to spin up and demo. All you need is, uh, you know, a Linux box uh, running Ubuntu or CentOS or Debian or whatever, what have you. Um, the application itself runs as a WSGI application behind an HTTP front end like Nginx or Apache. The installation itself is probably a little more, a uh, little more daunting than than for most. Um, that's something else we again we'd like to work on. But owing to the limited development effort that we have, uh, that we can that we can spend on the application, uh, it's just one of many things. Uh, yeah, I was just going to add something there. Um, a, a couple points actually. So. It is interesting. What I've seen, just just this is my own personal take on people adopting NetBox, is I frequently see uh, within organizations, within teams out there, um, there's one or two guys that are maybe uh, traditional network engineers that have caught on to this trend of network automation uh, and have stumbled across NetBox and they kind of intrinsically get it, uh, if you will. You know, they, they kind of understand what the point is. And so, you know, often their own time, they, they go and install it and they import some data into it and they start playing with it. Uh, and then what happens is they start showing it to the rest of their team. And what you see is these other guys that, you know, maybe aren't as far along in their automation journey, uh, journey at a personal level. Uh, but using NetBox, they start to see some of these concepts. And in particular, what I see is the first phase of network ado uh, NetBox adoption being a mechanism for documentation of the network. Um, you know, I think as network engineers, you know, we, we, we've all either participated in or seen situations where there is a total lack of good network documentation uh, in an environment. Um, NetBox can be a tool to solve that. So even if you don't want to do any sort of automation to date with it, uh, it's still a wonderful tool just to have all of that data in there just to look at. Um, and then the, the second point about um, uh, institutional uh, adoption of open source and so forth is um, it's a very good point on Jeremy's part. Um, definitely takes some organizational buy-in, uh, but I will note that Networks of Code is now offering uh, official third-party support for NetBox. So NetBox is and always will uh, remain an open-source project, which is separate from Networks of Code as an organization. But Networks of Code itself is offering um, commercial support for NetBox uh, for those institutions where that sort of thing uh, is the thing that will you know push it over the edge in being able to adopt it. Yeah, that's a great point, John. Thanks for uh, for bringing that up. And um, we've we've seen so much community involvement just in the last uh, I'd say the last year or so. It's really taken off to the point where I struggled to keep up with it, honestly. Um, so, the, Rick, your, your, the second question that you had asked earlier was, you know, about um, making community contributions back to the project. We have a lot of that, and honestly, um, the biggest the biggest help that people have been has been in just testing and coming back with. Like, discrete use cases 
um, for, for features because we get, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, in networking, we talk about, Hey, wouldn't it be great if we could do X? It's like, okay, well, when you say do X, right, that really could mean seven different things to seven different people, because you probably have a specific workflow in mind that you're not even aware of. You're not even cognizant that you have this specific workflow that differs from what other people might be doing and trying to back that up and pull, pull information out of people to, to describe, okay, well, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? You know, and what and what situations do you have to do that? What's led you to do that? And why might you not be doing it one or two different ways? And uh, trying to capture that and really translate that into application requirements is is pretty neat. It's a neat process, honestly, frustrating at times, but um, I, I think we've we've gotten fairly good at it. Um, and now it's it's a matter of you know just prioritizing all the different feature requests that we have out there. We've had a lot of people who uh, come over from the community and. Um, for, for whatever reason, have have become very active in it. Um, obviously, most people who use NetBox are going to are, are on the um, are, are very heavy toward the network engineering side. So, unlike most app, open source applications that deal primarily with like systems development, we have we we don't have as much uh, or as strong or prevalent of skill in like the development space that other applications might benefit from, right? So most people who use NetBox are going to be network engineers. Um, as great as we, we've been as an industry in adopting like Python and automation over the years, obviously that's not where we started, right? We started learning about BGP and switching and all the fun stuff that make, that make networks go. Um, but that said, we've, we've gotten a lot of people who have contributed pull requests, have, have been submitting uh, patches and stuff like that into NetBox, which is really, really encouraging to see. And at this point, it's just a matter of... Um, you know, trying to get people to help test out new releases, uh, file bug reports, right? Half the battle so often is just getting a bug report in the first place and then fixing it's actually pretty easy. Uh, so we rely a lot on that feedback and getting, um, uh, you know, both new ideas and, and from people or, or just reports of why things work or don't work for them um, and helping to shape the, the development focus as we move forward. We've got a a pretty significant backlog of new features that we'd like to get working on here as we look at uh, moving to version 2.8 and, and forward. And uh, no shortage of, of work to keep us busy, that's for sure. So just out of curiosity, uh, what, what do you think is next for NetBox? So as you talk about new features, things that are coming, are there are anything uh, on the horizon that you can say, yeah, we're definitely focusing on, you know, this, this and this, or is that just not yet decided? Somewhat, yeah. If you go, if you follow along on GitHub, now this, it ebbs and flows as we go through a release cycle. So basically what we've been doing in the past couple of years is we've been in the, in the 2.x train. So we'll do a, a 2.1 release, for example, and then we'll do... Um, a beta for 2.2 and then we'll do the 2.2 release and we'll be doing that. I think we're for the upcoming release, we're probably going to skip the beta cycle and focus more on smaller, more iterative releases to get things out a little bit quicker rather than having something sit beta for a month and getting very minimal feedback. Um, it's both a blessing and a curse that so many people have been using NetBox now because a lot of people have NetBox in production and don't necessarily have the time or, or budget to do the beta testing as well. So like for the 2.7 beta, we didn't get much feedback in that. Um, so we're probably going to um, shorten that, that uh, feedback cycle uh, significantly for the upcoming releases. But when you look on GitHub, you'll, you'll see issues that have been tagged as a milestone for version 2.8, for example, is what we're on right now. And um, none of that's written in stone, of course, but that should give people a fairly good idea of what to expect in the future. Um, we've been toying with the idea of publishing a roadmap, but uh, we're still working on getting a, a pretty good idea of that ourselves and what we what we put out there. And then obviously we don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. So uh, for right now, it's it's still 
kind of we're taking it one release at a time. Uh, I will say that for 2.8 coming up, we've got some really interesting stuff coming up. Uh, one of which is, and, and this is this is driven largely by uh, the community and, and, and what they were, you know, what the community wants as far as uh, you know, interaction with with uh, feature requests as they've been published on GitHub, but also in you know how do we driven driven by the the overarching goal of how do we make NetBox better at helping automate networks. And one of those is, uh, features, as an example, is supporting external authentication where you no longer have to uh, define users locally in NetBox. You can use an external authentication server for that. Now, we've had uh, support for LDAP uh, for some time, but obviously that's not good if you're not using LDAP as your external authentication service. Uh, so this is, was a way to make that more uh, generic and support a wider array of authentication services like SAML or, or uh, two-factor authentication, what have you. And uh, for things like that, we rely very heavily on the community for to you know to help shape those features because you know John or I and the other maintainers we can sit there and say, okay, we have you know we we know how external authentication works and we know roughly how that how, how that should be implemented but as far as the actual real world use cases like hey you know you you can't do x because because it doesn't work for certain conditions or you know y would be would be would offer more flexibility and things like that so we do rely pretty heavily on on the community for things like that and some other um other features you know we've we've had on on the list for <laughs> for a long time and uh trying just trying to get them done you know is you'll see uh iterative improvements in, in the ui things and and the data model like being able to support uh nested rack groups for example you know netbox you can define a group of racks which typically equates to like a cage in a data center or a room maybe um but some people have said you know I, i'd like to to have more flexibility around how I model that. And that's one of those things that's, you know, it's fairly straightforward. Like I'm looking at that issue, for example, has been open for since December, 2017, right? It's not something that really needs more, more feedback, but just needs to get done. And it's one of those things where it's just, we've got a lot of, a lot of stuff on the plate and trying to figure out, you know, what we should do when to what's the most optimal order in which to implement these features um, while remaining, you know, avoiding becoming too disruptive from one release to the next. So if you have feedback, so let's say there's someone who's out there who's trying it for the first time or someone who's running it in production or whatever, where's the best place to provide that? I'm assuming GitHub? Uh, GitHub is a good way to go. Uh, we've got, so our two primary uh, venues for discussion are, um, I guess, three. Uh, so first off, we've got GitHub, and that is the the formal venue for any feature requests, bug reports, uh, someone, anything that has to do specifically with the code the project itself. Now, if you just need help with installation or you're not sure if something's a bug or not, or you just want some guidance on how to use NetBox, we've got a great uh, discussion list that's open. It's a Google list. Um, and that's all linked from the readme on the, uh, on the GitHub page. And then third and finally, first for uh, more immediate help and, uh, you know, ad hoc discussion, there's the, um, the NetBox channel on the Network to Code public Slack, which uh, at last check has had over, uh, uh, I think over a thousand people in it. So there's, there's, yeah, 1400 people in there right now. So, um, a good amount of discussion happening there. And again, the discussion list is great for, uh, for longer term things and, and for more, uh, Googleable, uh, discussions for, <laughs> for posterity. Uh, anything else on NetBox you think we haven't covered yet? Or do you think that's a good place to wrap it up here? I think that's probably pretty good. All right. So uh, on that note, we should probably uh, take a minute. So we've we spent all this time talking, but it's always good to find out where people can be found. 
<laughs> because uh, all of us are online, have some sort of online presence, and, and it'd be good to continue the conversation. So, uh, Jeremy, why don't we start with you, uh, since we kind of ended there with Netbox. Where can people find you online? Well, you can always find me on GitHub, for sure. Uh, the GitHub name is just Jeremy Stretch, all one word. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, uh, somewhat infrequently, as uh, jstretch85. All right. Uh, Rick, how about yourself? Where can people find you? Uh, I'm also an infrequent uh, tweet user, but, uh, you know, ShermDog01 is on Twitter. And then uh, the network code Slack. Nice. Yeah, someone actually got ShermDog, and it's a spam account. So my friends at Twitter, if you ever want to take that account back for me, let me know. John, how about yourself? Are you anywhere online where people can, uh, can connect with you? Yeah, so I do uh, GitHub and um, LinkedIn and uh, Twitter, uh, all LAMPWINS, L-A-M-P-W-I-N-S, um, kind of amalgamation of a couple acronyms there. <laughs> of course, all of us are on the uh, Network to Code public Slack that I mentioned as well. Yeah, I was going to say, that's uh, so it's uh, a fantastic resource if you're you know looking to get you know, your feet wet or you're already fully in. If you're already fully in, you're probably already there. But <laughs> if you're looking to get your feet wet on, on network automation and those topics, there's, um, I don't know, you were 10,000 plus people last time I heard. <laughs> That's like, it's huge. Lots and lots of conversation, lots and lots of channels. A great place to get get help. But you mentioned specifically the uh, the Netbox channel. It's great. Um, you can register for that, right? Slack.networktocode.com. Is that correct? Yes, I think that's the I think that's the URL you go to. So you can self register for that and, and and go sign up. You definitely should do that if you're interested. And in, you mentioned the support for uh, for Netbox or anything else for Network to Code is doing. And it's just networktocode.com. It's simple enough. <laughs> you can tell I'm hanging out with a bunch of and network developer types because they're all like, yeah, you can find me on GitHub and maybe on Twitter. So. You can find me on Twitter and maybe on GitHub. <laughs> no, I am definitely there, but I'm the infrequent GitHub user. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at BC Jordo. So, um, so yeah, I think that's it for today's episode. Uh, if you liked it, there's a whole catalog of past, you know, networking goodness at networkcollective.com. Uh, you can go check that out there. Uh, if you want to subscribe to podcasts like this, um, we're going to be doing this regularly with Network to Code now. So I'm excited about that because we're going to have a series of shows here of. Um, specifically focusing on network automation and network automation topics. Uh, right now we're targeting about once a month. And so uh, subscribe to the Network Collective feed. You can do that on all the regular podcast sites, you know, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere else where podcasts are found. So I think that's it. So thanks so much for joining us today, and we will see you next time.